0: Exodus 3, 13 through 14. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Thanks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. Go ahead and have a seat. As a pastor, one of the privileges I get with my vocation is I get to perform wedding ceremonies. And recently, I uh, performed a wedding ceremony a couple weeks ago. I did the talk. They made the vows. Everything was done. And I was enjoying the festivities with the rest of the wedding party. And a woman approached me whom I've never met before. To this day, I don't even know her name. Just someone there that was part of the family, I believe. And she came up to me and said, hey, I want you to know what I believe about God. I was like, oh, that'd be great. <clears throat> she said, I believe God is in everything. I mean, just look around us. The trees, the, the whatever. We were on a beach, so it was, you know, like the birds, the sea, the rocks. And I'm like looking at everything with her, and I'm like, yeah, th- that is amazing. Thank you for sharing that with me. And she said, I just wanted you to know what I believe. And she walked away. And my first thought was, honestly, lady, it doesn't matter what you believe about God. He is who he is, regardless of what you think. No one gets to define God except God himself. You can't just create God what you want him to be like and then believe that to be true. But then as I sat with it a moment longer, my next thought was, God, I'm sure in some ways, I'm guilty of exactly what this lady's doing. What are the ways that I craft you to be how I want you to be? Even as a dedicated follower of Jesus, even as a pastor, a professional Christian, I'm sure, God, if I wait here long enough, we could both acknowledge the ways that I've shaped you into the image of who I want you to be. I mean, if I'm honest, don't I make God out to be more angry or at least more annoyed with other people's sins and bad behaviors than my own? Don't I kind of think he just winks at my shortcomings? Don't I make God out to be excited about the causes for justice that I can like wrap my head around or I can get excited about and then maybe ignore the injustices that are a little bit more uncomfortable for me. And as I waited there longer, I thought to myself, maybe God, I'm more like this lady than I think. You know, Rousseau famously said, God created man in his image and then man being a gentleman has returned the favor. Scott McKnight, a popular theologian, author, and seminary professor, gives two surveys at the beginning of each one of his theology classes. The first survey, he asks the students to list their likes and dislikes. Then he issues a second survey, immediately following, where he asks the students to list God's likes and dislikes. And guess what the similarity between the two surveys is? Professor McKnight says about 90%. In other words, students think God is 90% just like them. So maybe we do have this tendency in us. And what if what we think God is like is actually more of a reflection of ourselves than him. And what if there are many ways where my thinking and our thinking about God is off? And let's be honest, most of what we pick up about God, growing up from friends, families, media, is definitely more than just a little bit off. And listen, I don't think any of us in this room today want to be wrong about God. Now, if you're a committed follower of Jesus, or just a skeptic with questions here today, which, by the way, we're so honored that you're here. Whatever your questions are, pains, frustrations with God, we hope that you find this a safe place to bring your questions. And I really hope you'll try Alpha. But wherever you are, you probably want to know what's true about God. I mean, what we believe about God shapes who we are and how we're going to live day to day. Because if God is an unfeeling monster who gives people cancer and takes away children from their parents, and everything's supposed to be okay because it's all part of his plan, and if this God is all-powerful but not actually good or compassionate, then I need to watch out for my own self. I need to protect mine. Because no one else will, but if there's a God who really is a good shepherd, if I know that I have a Father in heaven who cares for me, who's looking out for me, who knows me, then I need to know this. If that's true, I need to know that that's true. Because if it is, then maybe I can rest. And maybe, thank you, and maybe I can slow down, and maybe I'll be okay. See, I need to know who God really is so I can know who I really am, and then I can know how to navigate this complicated modern world. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to bank on God being real, then I want to make sure that I get him right. I want to make sure that I know who he really is, and it's not just some figment of my imagination. And that, my friends, is what this next series here at Bridgetown Church is about. Knowing God, the seven I am statements of Jesus. You see, in John's gospel, he structures his book with these seven signs, these seven moments where Jesus demonstrates who he is and then explains it. And it's all around these seven I am statements. He multiplies food miraculously, feeds 5,000, and then says, I'm the bread of life. Experience, followed by his name. And we're gonna look at each one of these seven I am statements over these next eight weeks. And I think it's gonna be absolutely life-changing. Now, before we get into that, Before we get into the Gospel of John and these seven statements of Jesus, we're going to start with the first I am statement today. Moses and these two significant conversations he has with God. Perhaps two of the most important conversations in all of the Bible. Exodus chapter 3 and then Exodus 34. We have a lot of ground to cover. Here's the basic structure for today. Moses, Yahweh, Jesus, and you. So let's begin with Moses. Buckle up. We have a lot of ground to cover. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, put mankind right in the center of the garden, blessed them with this blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. God's desire is to bless humanity, that we would be fruitful and flourishing. So... The first people do that. God, again, reiterates this to a man, Abram. He says, I'm gonna bless you. You're gonna have more descendants than the stars of the sky, than the sand on the seashore. And God's promise of blessing through the people of Israel still stands as the story goes further. Even centuries later, Israel is now enslaved in Egypt, but they keep growing. They keep multiplying, and for this leader, Pharaoh, it's actually a problem. Exodus 1.7 says this, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So picture this. Israel's is out of their promised land into Egypt, and they're growing and growing and growing, and this military political superpower, Pharaoh, is growing very uncomfortable. Why is that? Well, he has them doing his work, providing for his economy, and he's afraid that if these Israelites keep growing, they may rise up against him and overpower him. And it's so interesting that what God blesses and calls good, Pharaoh hates. So just like the serpent in Genesis, the king of Egypt is against what God calls good. He's against the Hebrew people, he's against the blessing of what God is doing. Really, this blessing is Israel being a conduit for God's blessing to the entire world. So Pharaoh wants to subdue the Israelites. He attempts to keep them from growing in several different ways. You know the story. First, his first attempt is to increase the intensity of their labor. He's like, I know what I'll do to slow down their flourishing and reproduction. I'll make their work harder. I'll demand more, but give them less materials for their work. He tries that, but backfires. They grow and multiply. So he intensifies it. His next attempt was to have their midwives kill the newborn male babies. To slow their growth. To decrease the chance of an armed revolt by the young men. So the Hebrew labor and delivery nurses don't comply with the plan. They fear God, not the Pharaoh. And when questioned, they simply say, hey, these Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women. They're too fast. Classic excuse. Finally, he orders everyone in his kingdom. He's like, okay, look, here's what we're going to do. The midwives won't follow through. So now everyone in the entire kingdom kill any Hebrew baby that's born. Specifically, here's how you do it. Throw them in the Nile. And what's crazy is at every attempt to snuff out the Hebrews, Pharaoh is thwarted by women. Labor and delivery nurses, an immigrant mother, a big sister, the daughter of a political leader. Women in their normal everyday spaces doing God's work of justice. It's a beautiful, yeah, we should get excited about that, but don't be surprised. In fact, all throughout the Bible, we read of women participating in God's kingdom right alongside men. And this shouldn't surprise us. It was God's intention from the very beginning, men and women to rule and reign together. But right in the midst of this hostile environment, Moses is born to an enslaved Hebrew couple under intense oppression in a foreign land with an edict of death over him as a baby boy. Perhaps you've seen the film, but Moses is born. His mother hides him for a few months. Then in desperation for her life, the son of her life puts him in this little basket, puts him in the river, and Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter. She names him Moses, which means to draw out as she drew him out of the Nile River to take him into her own home. Now, a fascinating dynamic in this whole narrative is watching Moses and his own personal discovery of his true identity. There's a lot, I think, today that we can learn about ourselves, our own self-understanding of identity, even vocation, by paying attention to Moses. Perhaps you, today, may see some of yourself in him. So, we want to pay attention to this. And just to frame it up from the beginning, a couple things we notice. Moses is born to a couple from the tribe of Levi. He's born Hebrew. But at a very young age, he's adopted and becomes basically the grandson of the Pharaoh. That's probably a little confusing. So, The story goes on. One day, as Moses is grown up, he goes outside the palace compound. He's been raised and trained basically as royalty inside this Egyptian pharaoh's home. He goes outside the palace compound and he sees one of his own people, a Hebrew, being beaten by an Egyptian and something comes alive in Moses. In a moment of fury, In a fit of rage, without really a well-thought-out long-term strategy, he lashes out and kills one of the oppressors and buries him in the sand. Now, when news of this gets to Pharaoh, Pharaoh decides to kill Moses, his adopted grandson. So Moses wisely flees. As an exile, he goes to a land called Midian, The people there, when they see him, assume he's an Egyptian, looks like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian. He meets a family there. He gets married. He settles down and becomes a shepherd. Now, you can only imagine internally what was happening in Moses right now. He made this quick decision, this impulse to bring justice. He killed an Egyptian, probably made things actually worse for the Hebrews through that action and not better. He was moments ago in the Pharaoh's household. He could have had influence. He could have leveraged political power to help his people. But all that's gone now. He's in the desert, herding goats. How would that feel? Well, we get a little indication when Moses names his son Gershom, which means, I am a foreigner. So in other words... He labels his son forever out of his own pain and sadness. That's a lot of transference to put on your poor kid. But it is interesting, and we have to ask ourselves, how does Moses see himself in this moment? And here's what we have so far. He's born to a couple from the tribe of Levi. He's adopted as a son of an an Egyptian princess. He's named, meaning to draw out. He's identified with the Hebrew people as his own people. To the Midianites, to others, he's perceived as an Egyptian. About himself, he says, I've become a foreigner. And vocationally, he's been elevated to the place of a shepherd. Now, needless to say, this poor guy, I think, is confused. Moses must be wondering, like, am I Hebrew? Am I Egyptian? Egyptian? Am I a Midianite? Am I royalty? Am I enslaved? Am I a shepherd? Who am I? And then one day, while he's out tending sheep, he sees a bush on fire. So Moses draws near to this strange sight. And then, if you have your Bible still uh, open to Exodus 3, here's how it reads. Exodus 3, verse 4. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, he called out to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Notice how personal This encounter is. God calls Moses by name. But also, Moses recognizes this is not just a man. This is a holy space. Moses responds to that falling down, hiding his face. And the contrast is stark. God personal, calling him by name. God who's holy. Moses is afraid to look at. And look what happens next. A couple of verses later in verse seven, the Lord said to him in this moment, I indeed have seen the misery of my own people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Amazing. God shares Moses' concern for justice for the Israelites. God's concern is Moses' concern. But here comes the surprise. God says, I've come down to rescue them. And I'm sure Moses at that moment is like, yes, It's about time. Go, God. And then God says, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Moses is like, wait, what? Why me? Why don't you just do it? And immediately Moses is concerned about his inadequacy for this massive task of deliverance. Moses, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? He has a list of excuses and weaknesses why he can't do it. And I think when Moses says, who am I to deliver the Israelites? He's also saying, who am I as a person? How do you see me, God? God, I'm not sure who I am, but I can tell you one thing. I'm certainly not this deliverer. I tried that. Look where it got me. And family, just pause for a second here and ask yourself, have you ever felt like this? Do you feel like this now? Do you have any kind of sense of a commissioning and an invitation for your life, perhaps in this new year, that you look at the task and you go, that is way over my pay grade, way out of my experience and my confidence. I don't know about you, but I feel like this driving around our city. We're being invited to step into the margins of our city. We desperately want to see God's kingdom come and his will be done in Portland as it is in heaven. But how? I mean, do you read the news? Do you follow along with the rate of homicides in 2020, 2021, and 2022? The crime is unprecedented. It's overwhelming. Who am I? To change this. I mean, if I'm honest, that's how I feel most of the time. But notice God's response to Moses is basically wrong question. God doesn't even answer Moses' original question. Moses says, who am I? And God responds, I will be with you. Because it's not about who you are. It's about who I am, says God. And I am with you. It's about who's with you, Moses. Family, do you know this staggering reality? It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you came from, your family of origin, your wounds, your mistakes, your last year, or your last relationship. It matters whose you are. You, Who you belong to defines who you are. Your true identity is defined by the living God. And if you are a son or daughter of the most high God, if God is with you, if God is with us, Bridgetown family, then we can do what he commissions us to do. And God, and and in this moment, Moses desperately needs God to define him. And I wonder if part of why Moses is pressing into God's identity is because he's trying to figure out his own. Moses, in his mind, must be like, perhaps, God, if I know who you are, then I can know better who I am. So Moses presses in, God, what's your name? If they question me, I'll go to Pharaoh and I'll go to the Israelites. But listen, they asked me before when I tried to bring justice, who are you? They're going to say it again. So who do I say has sent me? What is your name? And then, for the first time in the scriptures, God gives his personal name. This name that is so holy, so revered in the Hebrew tradition, that they don't even say it out loud. God says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. Kind of helpful, but... Also not. (laughs) Translated the best we can, this would be Yahweh, the personal name of God, the name that comes from the Hebrew verb hayah, meaning to be. And this is complicated to translate because we don't know exactly how it was spelled out. See, in ancient Hebrew, they didn't use vowels. So our best guess, fitting the vowels in, is Yahweh. Spelt like up on the screen, Y A H W E H. But usually we take the vowels out because those weren't in the original and we use the consonants, those four letters, Yahweh. Or in your English translation, you'll notice it's all caps, L O R D. Yahweh. The sacred name that the Israelites will know their God by from this point forward. And while it's a bit mysterious, Yahweh means at least these things. First, it means that he is the God who is and will be forever. His existence does not depend on anyone else. He's the uncreated one, the uncaused caused, the creator God who simply is. Also, it means that he will consistently be who he is. Yahweh is unchanging in his nature. Whatever is true about Yahweh, he will always be faithfully and true to that. If he's compassionate, he will always be compassionate. If he's slow to anger, he will always be slow to anger. He is who he is. And at this moment, Yahweh reveals his name to Moses. I think there's also clarity for Moses about his own Self-identity. It's almost as if God is saying to Moses, Moses, you want to know who I am? I'll do more than just that. I'll tell you who you are. You are Moses, which means literally to draw out. And now you will draw out my people from Egypt. You are my deliverer. You are a true Israelite from a family of faith like your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and most importantly, Moses, you are the one whom Yahweh is with. Best of all, Moses, the most defining thing about you is I am with you. And family, just like Moses, we all need to hear our true identity from God. God knows your name and has a destiny for you. And I wonder today, do you know it? As I was preparing uh, for this teaching, there was a moment when I just felt overcome with my heart just breaking, thinking about Generation Z and thinking about those 25 and under. Never before have young people like today had so many options for identity thrown at them. There's never been, this is an experiment on a generation. And family, you need to know that your identity cannot be found by looking inward to yourself. You need to hear it from God. And the reality is, the irony is, that usually the way that we hear from God is actually through his people speaking prophetically to you. Now, if you have a burning bush moment, fantastic, take it. That's wonderful. For the rest of us, It normally comes through God's people, speaking prophetically to one another. And as I look back over this year for myself, some of the most powerful moments of hearing my identity reaffirmed or redirected have been prophetic words spoken by others, by many of you. See, we do this for each other. That's why response and prayer ministry and prophetic prayer and inner healing prayer is so important. We help one another, we hear for one another. And like Moses, we need to know who God is so that we can know who we are. So Moses hears God's name, but he wants to know more. Fast forward now to Exodus 34. You guys doing okay? That was Exodus three. We're checking in, everybody okay? Now we're going to Exodus 34. It's kind of like the halfway mark, kind of. So Exodus 34. Moses, spoiler alert, does go with Yahweh, confronts Pharaoh, eventually lets the people go, read the book later. Honestly, you should read Exodus later. And their relationship gl- grows even closer. Moses and Yahweh talk a lot. But there's this thing about Moses. He keeps pressing in to know more. It's this shameless audacity. It's, it's startling, honestly. So our last stop is here, Exodus 34. Moses asking God for more than just his name. He says, show me your glory. In other words, show me who you really are, God. Show me your essence, your character. Don't hold back. And Yahweh says, look, Moses, appreciate the sentiment. You can't handle seeing all of me. But I will cause my goodness to pass by you, and I will proclaim my name to you, and I will reveal more to you of who I am than I have anyone else ever. So the next morning, Moses gets up early, climbs the top of the mountain where he often meets to talk with God, and he meets with Yahweh. Exodus 34, starting in verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshiped. Quite a lot in there. This is Yahweh's self-disclosure statement to the world, quite possibly the most quoted part of the Bible by the Bible. When God describes himself, he starts with his name and then his character. And the order here matters. The fact that he begins with compassionate and gracious means that these are dominant, the most important of the list. So just a quick word on each of these. What is Yahweh like? Yahweh is compassionate. And the Hebrew word behind this is the feeling that a parent has for a child. A deep-rooted love and affection for another. How a mother feels inclined towards her baby. Wants the best for them. Loves them beyond words. That is how Yahweh feels towards humanity. Yahweh is gracious. And in contrast to that emotional feeling, this is an action word. It is to show mercy or to show grace. It's something you do. It actually, in a biblical context, has to do with help. This is a word often used in the Psalms in David's prayers for rescue. And it means that Yahweh is a God who responds who saves us from danger. And this was a common request of people when they encountered Jesus, actually. Like the blind man who called out, son of David, have mercy on me. And what's interesting about Yahweh is not only does he have this mercy and grace towards us, but also towards our enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger. It takes a lot to actually get God angry. You can make him mad, but you have to really work at it. Now listen, there are things in this world that we all in this room today would agree are not okay. And what God's anger means is that he has a healthy, emotionally mature response to evil. And it's called anger. Now it's it's different than our anger, right? My anger usually comes from wounded pride. I'm embarrassed, I feel stupid in front of others, someone I want to impress, and my anger is often just because simply I don't get what I want. But God's anger is, not you, this is me, but God's anger is different. It's like a parent's love for a child expressed when they're angry because the child keeps running into the street. They're in danger. God can get angry, but it takes a lot. His baseline towards humanity is compassion. And mercy, and he says about himself that he's abounding in love and faithfulness. And this speaks to Yahweh's covenant-keeping, his hesed, his covenant-keeping kind of love, like a faithful husband. Yahweh stays committed to his people, to you, no matter what. This is a major theme of the entire Bible, no matter what we do. God remains faithful. And then he says, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Listen, good news. God forgives when we repent, but he also doesn't wink at sin. If someone doesn't want to be forgiven, there will be justice. God will punish evil and sin, and this is a good thing. We all long for a world without school shooting without sex trafficking, and there will be a world like that someday because God will deal with every sin. He will bring justice once and for all just as he cleanses and purifies us every time we ask. And listen, to be clear, because this is tricky to understand on the first reading, Yahweh does not punish kids for their parents' sin. In the law, Moses clearly says that each person is accountable for their own actions. But if we're honest, we all know that a parent's sin and bad choices have consequences on their children's future. Addiction, abuse, even divorce all have fallout and children will suffer. But Yahweh is faithful to keep dealing with sin until it's all gone. Like cancer in the body, he will not stop until it's totally eradicated. That is good news. Yahweh, like a good parent, deals with sin because it will destroy you. He will not overlook it, but he takes care of it so that you and I can be free. That's what Yahweh is like. Now, We're gonna make a turn here to Jesus, and we have to ask this question. Okay, so that's Moses, Yahweh, Old Testament, but what about now? What about Jesus? How does he fit into this description of Yahweh? I mean, is Yahweh the God of the Old Testament who's angry and so intense, and Jesus is the kind of laid-back, mellower, West Coast son? Seriously, how do Yahweh and Jesus fit together according to the scriptures? The summary statement would be this. Jesus is Yahweh in flesh and blood. This is what we just celebrated with Advent and Christmas, the miracle of incarnation. The team at Bible Project said it well, so I wanna quote them. This is so good. Follow along. Just like the Old Testament authors claimed that their various titles for God, all referred to the one true God known as Yahweh, the apostles who wrote the New Testament believed that Jesus was the physical embodiment of Yahweh himself. Their conviction was that the God who revealed himself to Abraham and Moses, the God known for many titles in the Old Testament, was most perfectly revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. For them, there was no God knowable to us apart from Jesus. In him, the love and mercy and justice of Yahweh, the creator God, became human so we could hear and touch him and know him by name. And that, my friends, is why when Jesus was questioned about his own identity by the religious leaders in John chapter eight, he responded and said to them, very truly I say to you, you want to know who I am? Before Abraham was, I am. And the religious leaders understood exactly what he meant and picked up stones to kill Jesus for blasphemy. See, Jesus clearly believed that he was Yahweh, the great I am come in the flesh. Jesus is adding color and further detail to the revelation that Moses received of who God is and what he's like. So, what is God like? In John's gospel over the coming weeks, we're going to take a look at these seven names, these seven descriptions linked to these seven signs of Jesus. I am the bread of life for a world that hungers for real satisfaction. I am the light of the world for all who stumble in darkness. I am the door, an invitation to come into relationship with the Father. I am the good shepherd for all who need his care and protection. I am the resurrection and the life. He has died our death and offers us his life. I am the way, the truth, and the life for all who are lost and need direction. I am the vine, the the life source of the living God offered to all. This is who God is. Not distant, cold, and uncaring, but present and personal. He knows your name. He's calling out to you. He's asking you, do you see? It's interesting that Moses had to see the bush and then he had to go respond to it. I wonder, is God trying to get your attention? Is God asking you to draw close? And will you be honest with him? Asking him about your failures, your fears. I wonder if in this year there might be an invitation for some to renew your trust in who God really is. To lay aside maybe the ways that you've created him in your own image and receive who he actually is. You see, the reality is that in heaven right now, in this Revelation 4 scene, Jesus is being acknowledged for who he truly is. There's no question. And if that is right, if Jesus is the center of it all, if Jesus is the weight and has the gravity and the mass like the sun does in our solar system, then I want to know that. And if he is the center and everything else in my life will fall into place and orbit around him, then that, friends, is the most important thing that I could ever know. So I wonder, This year, what is the invitation for you? God is still encountering people today. We don't live for experiences. We live for God. But the reality is there are still miraculous, powerful encounters available today. But you have to see it. You have to draw near to it. And you have to press in. I wonder if this year that might be an invitation for us here at Bridgetown Church.